BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and producing natural gas with fewer emissions in the Permian Basin. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I think it's fair to say this is not your typical election. I am not a natural politician. Everybody loves me. Have you always told the truth? I've always tried to. Hillary Clinton is a bigot. These are racist ideas, race-baiting ideas, anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant, anti-women. I know more about ISIS than the generals do. No, Donald, you don't. Have you even read the United States Constitution? Fathers will be able to say to their daughters, you too can grow up to be president. We need a political revolution. Nobody knows the system better than me. Really? Which is why I alone can fix it. USA! 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 From the New York Times, this is The Run-Up. I'm Michael Barbaro. Donald Trump now says this about his role in the history of the birther movement. Hillary Clinton and her campaign of 2008 started the birther controversy. I finished it. I finished it. You know what I mean. He finished it? That's not just a fib or a falsehood. That's a lie. Donald Trump fanned the conspiracy theory that President Obama was not born in the United States for five years. This feels like some kind of a milestone in a long history of deception in American politics. It was so fact-checkable, so well-documented, that when Trump turned reality on its head and claimed he'd actually debunked this fallacy, it felt like a choice, a calculated, unprovoked choice by a presidential candidate to lie. If you need more evidence, there's this. It's one of the greatest scams in the history of politics and in the history period. He doesn't want to be labeled as a birther, probably. I'm proud to be. There are no hospital records. I have people that actually have been studying it, and they cannot believe what they're finding. He may have one, but there's something on that person. Maybe religion. Maybe it says he's a Muslim. The Rockefeller family doesn't buy ads in a newspaper. Now, you're going to have two poor people putting an ad in a newspaper that their son was born. There's something fishy about the whole thing. It's very strange. The whole thing is very strange. His own family doesn't know what hospital he was born in. There's no birth certificate. There's only a certificate of live birth, which is a totally different thing. A lot of people do not think it was an authentic certificate. And if he wasn't born in this country, which is a real possibility, I'm not saying it happened. I'm saying it's a real possibility. You're doing a Ted Cruz, what you tried to do to President Obama, where he was born, Obama. his birth certificate. Who knows about Obama? His Obama. mother was a, a U.S. citizen Who born knows? in Kansas. You know, can I, so can was, I was he a natural Who born knows? citizen? Who knows? Who knows? Let's who, who cares right now? It is rather amazing that all of a sudden it materializes. But he is a citizen. He produced that long form, form birth cert. Well, a lot of people don't agree with you, and a lot of people feel it wasn't a proper certificate. We have to look at it. We have to see, is it real? Are you satisfied? Yeah, I am. Actually, I'm very I went surprised back at you. I'm very surprised at you. I don't know how you can be satisfied when you look at what's been presented. So the question is, why lie so brazenly? What's the point? That's what we're asking today. If Donald Trump is willing to lie as a campaign strategy, does he know something about politics, about voters' desires, about human behavior that we don't? We'll put that to top strategists on both sides, and we'll ask a renowned expert on lying about the art of the lie. 
Here with me now is Mike Murphy, who was an advisor to Jeb Bush and to John McCain in 2000. He hosts his own podcast, Radio Free GOP. Also, here is my colleague Maggie Haberman, the dean of American Political Reporters. Well, I, I have to quibble with your premise a little because I don't think there is any strategy to Trump. I think Trump is just kind of a, I don't know, a super salesman who will feel a room or his perception of a group of voters and then do or say anything in the moment that pleases both his psychotic you know, view of the world and what he thinks the audience wants. So I don't think he really thinks three levels down. I think he just is. He's kind of a barstool philosopher, and the fact that often he says things that are completely untrue don't trouble him because either he simply doesn't care as long as they achieve his objective of you know, pleasing the room in front of him, or he's you know, psychotic and can't tell the difference himself. I think there's something to the first part. I'm not going to do the psychiatric diagnosis, but I do agree with Mike that I think that we are used to in political campaigns attributing uh, strategy to a lot of what we see and trying to look at things through a specific prism of someone is doing X because of Y. In the short term, that is sometimes true with the Trump campaign, but Trump is very much driving this ship. And so I have never covered a campaign where I've seen such schisms between what the aides will say and do and the top strategists will say and do publicly and then what the candidate does himself. I mean, Trump literally will go out and say the opposite of what his aides will say. He'll go out and say, nobody speaks for me and tweet something like that. Um, and I, I think that Trump will say whatever he has to say to get through, you know, a five or 10 minute moment in time. And that is essentially, those are the chunks in which he operates and thinks. And so he does what will please the crowd in front of him. Those things don't have to be consistent. I have heard him contradict himself in the same sentence, but it doesn't really matter because it's all about just getting to the next one. Right, but I have to challenge you both on this because what we saw on Friday morning was somebody who, in a premeditated manner, decided to get up because he certainly broadcasted to the world, I'm going to make this announcement on this topic. And then he did it. And that announcement was full of out-and-out falsehoods and lies about the way he has handled this, his role in it, and I think that that therefore made it an active decision to bring a lie before the public. No, I just completely disagree with you. I mean, to the sense that, yes, I mean, that might be what the end result is what ended up happening, but I don't think that he got up that morning saying, I need to make a, a strategic decision about birtherism, despite the fact what his aides wanted him to do. I think that he was being shoved into this, and his main goal was, how do I get the most attention for my hotel? <clears throat> the strategist begged him to do something. He said, fine, I'll do it, but I'm going to do it and sell the hotel because I got a big brain. Then, because Trump cannot admit defeat... He now declares that Hillary created this smear, but he, with Gandhi-like love of the country, solved it because Trump has to be the hero of every story. So he creates this mythical world, and that's where all the lies and falsehoods come in. But it's all just Trump being Trump. That's the atomic clock here, and all the staff in the world doesn't change it. You just said something that I think is really important, Mike, that I think that still is very hard to communicate to our readers and has confounded reporters, viewers, readers, voters throughout this primary, which is you just said that there's the specific world that he inhabits. That is a, a fundamental truth of this campaign, which is that the world as Donald Trump sees it is not something that I think would hold up to third-party scrutiny in a lot of cases. And so what you have is a lot of people around him, family, friends, supporters, in some cases voters, who want to affirm that view, and he looks to them for affirmation, so then it becomes a self-sustaining thing. 
And the idea that, you know, I'm going to create this narrative or this theory or this or this lie that, you know, Hillary Clinton began this and I ended it. She neither personally began this nor has he ended it. He, and he never ended it. And Friday doesn't count. But that is how he has sort of perpetuated his candidacy is he creates these truths in his mind, these things that he wants to be the case. And he gets buy in from people around him. So over in Brooklyn, this has to be an extraordinary frustration the narrative out there is that Hillary Clinton is dishonest. This is a massive oversimplification, but indulge her for a minute. The reputation she has is for being dishonest. A very big reputation he has is for telling it like it is. As a strategist, Mike, who really studies voters, how did that happen? Like, how do you reconcile that with reality? Well, it's interesting because I was on uh, Morning Joe in New York, oh, I don't know, a week ago, and they were all, before I got on, I, I got to sit there at Sharpton for a little while, but uh, beforehand, they were all a flutter about a new Quinnipiac poll that said by like 22 points, people thought Donald Trump was more transparent than Hillary Clinton. And just listening to the conversation to me was a, a great window into the way that the kind of elite media and the, the kind of... I don't know, the opinion elite of the country define things versus the greater voter universe because the opinion elite were all like, but Trump hasn't released his taxes. Trump's medical records are on a TV show with this crazy Patch Adams doctor he's got. And that, you know, <laughs> the guy waving the bong around, who I, I'm not sure I would let check out my hamster, just the perception of the guy I had. You know, there's no transparency. But out in Warren, Michigan, when you ask people about transparency, they see Hillary talking political cliches and avoid in their perception taking responsibility for anything and all the double talk and the parsing. And they see Trump, you know, telling it like it is, even if it occasionally veers into racism. And that is Trump's little magic sauce that makes people perceive that he's this straight shooter, even though in a fact check column, he's anything but a straight shooter. Mike, I want to get at you as an advisor who actually helped someone think through how to run against Donald Trump. And that was Jeb Bush in this campaign before he went over to the Super PAC and the, and the kind of legal walls went up. When you were thinking about the campaign as a strategist, what were you guys over in Jeb land discussing as the appropriate way to handle moments when a Donald Trump-like candidate lies or is a, a dishonest in a debate or just anywhere at a rally? Like, what did you see as your role or Jeb's role in countering that, fact-checking it from the stage? Or was a decision made that that's not the right rule? How do you handle that? Well, I think just about everybody in politics assume the old rules of gravity, which have been true for, you know, 100 years. So you're not a fool to believe they'll be true again. And again, ultimately in this election, I think they may be true again, that the media plays the fact-checking role. And so in my days with Jeb, before I went over to Super PAC, we weren't that, a, Trump was a relatively new sideshow. The real concern was Cruz, because we knew, well, two concerns. The concern was the primary voters, because we knew they were looking for a grievance, and we knew that wasn't who Jeb was. So we were very focused on trying to consolidate the non-grievance half of the party to have an army big enough to take on the grievance half, and we really thought Cruz would be that guy. He was well-positioned. He was a shrewd campaigner. He had the ability to raise money. Trump kind of eclipsed him and also eclipsed some of the other candidates on not only grievance but being on so you know resolutely anti-politics and being what my Hollywood friends here in L.A. would call a pre-aware title, Iron Man 5. People knew who he was. 
That's worth a lot in presidential primary politics. But the fact is, yes, you are not generally planning these things where you're the fat cop on the stage. That's for the machinery to do. And then when they call somebody a liar, you amplify it with your campaign, which is essentially an amplifier of information, and you kill them. What's happened this time is that Trump's chunk of the vote doesn't really care that the political establishment, be it politicians from it or the media, disapproves of Trump. It's almost a badge of honor. But what we're going to find out in a general election is just how far that string goes. And Trump, sitting around 42, 41 in the polls, does still seem to be, you know, hanging on to a hunk, but that's not a majority hunk. Final question, guys. Even if Donald Trump doesn't win, he won the Republican nomination. And he's gotten this far with a level of dishonesty we haven't seen in forever. Can the political world ever go back to being the way it was before he basically kind of shattered it? I don't think that I'm going to turn this mostly over to Mike, but I personally don't think that there is another person lingering out there who can do what Trump has done. I just don't think there's anybody else who has the the confluence of factors, personality, accessibility to media, and nobody else who has his unfailing interest and ability to just say whatever comes to mind, whether it's true or not. I do think that he, he has been like a show, for lack of a better way to put it. And somebody was quoted in a story that our colleague Jonathan Martin did over the weekend saying that the country has been transfixed by him, whether they like him or don't like him. And I do think something is going to have to fill that void. I guess the question is whether it is Donald Trump deciding that he is addicted to this and is going to say he's running again and try to fill the void that way. Yeah, my guess is there'd be a bit of a stain of Trump, and there may even be kind of a counter-Trump move to find the anti-Trump next time, because this is not going to end well for the party at all. And we'll be back a year from now saying, boy, that was sure a lot of noise about nothing. A nut ran, a nut won the nomination, a nut lost. Uh, That said, Trump has cheapened politics by bringing the worst elements of pop culture into it. And that toothpaste may be out of the tube now. And so it'll be interesting to see. We're going to have a huge battle in the Republican Party after this to figure out what we are. And it's going to be a noble one, but there are going to be Trumpian elements in the, uh, among the many warlords that try to fight this out. So it, it'll be fascinating. And uh, I'm not sure the crossover of the Kardashian-Trump celebrity politics thing will ever go completely away now. We'll see. Mike, thank you very much. Maggie, thank you for being here in the studio. It's my pleasure. Snakes, zombies, sharks, heights, speaking in public, the list of fears is endless. But while you're clutching your blanket in the dark, wondering if the sound in the hall was actually a footstep, the real danger is in your hand when you're behind the wheel. And while you might think a great white shark is scary, what's really terrifying and even deadly is distracted driving. Eyes forward. Don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. My name is Thomas Gibbonsneff. I'm a journalist at the New York Times. I served in the Marine Corps as an infantryman. When it comes to reporting on the front line, a lot of the same basics are at play. Uh, you're looking at the map of where you're going. If you're on a paved road, field roads, you know, is there a hospital nearby? Is your body armor affixed with the first aid kit? Does everyone know where that first aid kit is? We arrive into a, a military position. I get out of the car. I look at my watch. You know, I set a timer, no more than an hour. I'm listening for drones, jets, checking with the team. Is everyone comfortable? And if they are, then we proceed. 
frontline reporting is dangerous, but I think nothing is more important than talking to the people involved, you know, hearing their stories and being able to connect that with people thousands of miles away. Anything that can make something like this more personal, I think is well worth the risk. New York Times subscribers make it possible for us to keep doing this vital coverage. If you'd like to subscribe, you can do that at nytimes.com slash subscribe. We've established that Donald Trump has a historically elastic relationship with the truth. Whether or not that's an official strategy, we're still debating that here. But we know this. It hasn't damaged him enough with voters to end his campaign. Is that because he's especially good at lying? I asked an expert in lying, Pamela Meyer, author of Lie Spotting. You know, I think he's a great liar because a bad liar will be either overconfident or they'll exude some arrogance or they'll promise something that you don't necessarily want or they won't really be able to intuit the story that you want to hear. A good liar intuitively knows what it is you want to hear, dangles it out in front of you just when you need it, expresses confidence enough so that you allow them a pass if you think they're lying or might trust them a little bit more than you normally would. And though we may think he's a little bit arrogant or we may think he's overconfident or we may think that he's you know, promising ridiculous things to the American people, there are a number of people out there for whom he's pitch perfect. In this race, both people have a reputation for dishonesty, but they're different because with Clinton, it's what she's withheld from us. With Trump, it's what he's given us. From your perspective, how do we receive a lie of commission versus a lie of omission? A high-stakes lie is a high-stakes lie, a lie that affects who you're going to vote for, what house you're going to buy, who you're going to marry, what job you're going to take. These are high-stakes. If someone's going to give you information or omit information from you that does not allow you to make an important decision correctly that's going to punctuate your life, it's a high-stakes lie. And whether or not it's omission or commission doesn't really matter. What really matters is whether or not its impact on you is significant. Thank you so much for being on The Run-Up. This has been so much fun, and that is the truth. <laughs> but how, as a presidential candidate, are you supposed to respond to a lie? I called up Paul Begala, a high-powered Democratic operative, who advised Hillary Clinton's husband during his 1992 presidential campaign. We've never seen anything like this. We have not. You know, Stephen Colbert tried to warn us when he talked about truthiness in the age of Bush and Cheney, but that was nothing compared to now. And it's hard to know what to do uh, as a politician or as the journalist. As, as a politician, you can spend all your time chasing down these lies. I hate to use such a harsh word, but that's the word you use, and you're right. If you do that, then you've never actually told voters what you might do if you win. And I think that's part of the challenge Hillary Clinton is facing. But do you think she's actually doing that much, calling out on his lies? I, I look at the example of what happened with the birther movement. You could theoretically argue that that would be a moment where she could devote an entire speech or news conference just to that, but, but she didn't. And I wonder what the role of a rival is in these cases. Is it the candidate's job to call their rival a liar, or is it the wider world's job to see the lie for what it is? Well, a little of both. If in fact, credible, independent media are examining the lies and calling them lies, then you don't have to do it if you're the politician. In the case of the birther movement, everybody likes to bang on the press, and I'm first in line for that. In this case, the media did their job. The press did its job. And so I, did, I don't think the Hillary campaign needed to weigh in. Now, they had allies doing it, not the least of whom was the president of the United States of America. Right. 
so they, they were able to call it out. But it is a really terrible conundrum, uh, because I guess uh, as a Hillary advocate, I'm for her, and as you know, I advise the super PAC that supports her. I don't want to see her spending all her time simply saying Trump's a liar, Trump's a liar. Um, I even try not to use that word myself on CNN the other night. I said he prevaricated when he said that Hillary started the person movement. It's such a harsh word. It's hard to ratchet up above that. Well, that's interesting. So you, you think that must be reserved for special occasions. The Times actually used that word on Friday in a front page story. I wrote it. It was done with a lot of careful consideration. Why are you anxious about that word gaining, I guess, too much currency or what? Well, again, if it comes from the Times and that the story you wrote, and not just to blow smoke up your skirt, and the, the headline that your editors wrote, I think was a watershed because I, I, as a partisan, I think if I go too quickly to the L word, then I can diminish its credibility. You know, back when I was working for Bill Clinton, the Bush campaign accused him of raising taxes 123 times. Well, I don't know. I don't think it was, but he certainly had raised taxes as governor. So you don't want to say that's a lie. You just say, I'm going to cut taxes for the middle class and raise them on the rich. If you go to that word as a partisan too quickly, it, it loses its currency. And the fact that the Times, I'm sure, upon great reflection, said, look, this is simply a lie. It was a knowing falsehood intended to mislead and misinform. That has a lot of power. Do you worry that the electorate, or some surprisingly large part of it, either doesn't care about dishonesty of the sort that Donald Trump exhibited with birtherism, or sees it as a virtue? Yes, more the latter even than the former. This has been coming for quite some time, but an enormous percent of the American population has now entered a fact-free zone where they are simply impervious to facts. I, you know, I grew up in a small town in Texas. I know a lot of people who are for Trump, and I have probably family members who are for Trump, so I don't want to denigrate folks who are for Trump. If you want to blow the mind of a Trump supporter, tell her or him this. We have had net migration from America back to Mexico in the last seven to ten years, something in the order, the Pew Hispanic Center says, of a million Mexicans have left and gone home. So Mr. Trump's wall will only slow down their departure. You tell that to people, and they won't believe it. They just don't believe it. They simply reject it. You know, any time a piece of information fits into a master narrative that you already believe, you're more likely to give it credibility. So if you're sitting there worrying in your small town in Texas, about uh, Mexicans overrunning the border and stealing our jobs and their rapists and their murderers. Donald Trump says that, and you nod your head in assent because it fits a pre-existing narrative. So how does Hillary Clinton deal with this shift in something fundamental that we thought existed in the electorate, which is an expectation, a desire for truth, and an offense at dishonesty? It is perhaps the most interesting, and in some ways for me, painful fact of this election, which is the great divide in America is education. Even more, I think, than race or income or region, it's education. She, Hillary Clinton may well be the first Democrat in history to win college-educated white people. You know, Barack Obama, I thought, was tailor-made for college-educated whites, and he lost them by about 10 points. No Democrat has ever won. Not Bill Clinton, not, not JFK. But she is poised to win them, I think, because she is particularly rooted in the fact-based world. And I'm proud to say that the fact-checkers at, at PolitiFact, they policed all the statements of all the politicians. And, of course, Hillary got caught in saying several things that were 
not factually accurate, but her rate was in the realm of one out of five. And of course, they only pick sketchy assertions to check. And Trump is something in the order of 80%. So she's really deeply rooted in the fact-based world. And I think that, that actually that is helping her exceed democratic performance among college-educated folks. But you and I have talked about this notion that both candidates in this race are, in a way, redefining our relationship to trust of the traditional sort. Hillary is asking Americans, because of some of the doubts they have about her trust, to trust in her experience and her readiness for the job. Donald Trump is asking Americans, because of doubts about his candor and integrity, to trust in him to blow up the system. But both of them, at base, are asking for a different kind of trust than the one that you and I would have heard about in Sunday school, right? I think so, although I think Hillary is in a more traditional sense. Uh, You know, she is saying, I've been doing this for a very long time. I care about you. I can prove from my very first job out of law school that I was uh, caring about uh, poor folks, minorities, working class people. Um, And and Trump is saying, basically, don't let the the educated people put one over on you. What what a wonderful uh, encapsulation of his message when he said, I love the poorly educated. Every con man does. It doesn't mean, by the way, that people who are for Trump or who believe Trump even are stupid. You know, I used to work for Frank Lautenberg. Frank was a senator from New Jersey. He was the founder of ADP, one of the early tech companies, one of the smartest men I ever knew. He fell for Bernie Madoff's scam. Why? Because Bernie was telling him what he wanted to hear. And so anytime somebody tells you what you want to hear, you're very open to falling for it. Trump is so completely unmoored by any sort of a commitment to factual accuracy, that he will say anything if he thinks you'll believe it. I want to go back, because you are a strategist after all, and I think you bring the benefit of advising candidates in the moment about how to deal with pretty extraordinary moments like this, to 1992. um, Bill Clinton, who you were a top advisor to, was running against George H.W. Bush. And there was a moment in that campaign where... George H.W. Bush raised the specter of a young Bill Clinton backpacking in the USSR and what that told us about him and his motivations and his character. It contained essentially kind of an untruth in its implication. How did you guys deal with that? What did that look like? Well, Clinton wanted to address it directly. So this seems very quaint today, 24 years later. But Clinton, of course, had taken great pains to avoid service in Vietnam. Bush volunteered for World War II and was, I believe, the youngest pilot in the U.S. Navy. So there was an enormous cultural difference between the two of them, a generational difference. And it was getting toward the end of the race, and I do think the Bush campaign was getting desperate, and they latched onto this student backpacking trip that Clinton had taken to Moscow. And we're darkly hinting that somehow that that compromised him or somehow he made him a spy. They didn't really spell it out. I mean, Trump flat out says, you know, I think Ted Cruz's father may have been complicit in the Kennedy assassination. Right. But what Clinton did was confront him directly to his face in the debate and pulled out a pretty neat piece of history. When Joe McCarthy went around this country attacking people's patriotism, he was wrong. He was wrong. And a senator from Connecticut stood up to him named Prescott Bush. Mm -hmm. Your father was right to stand up to Joe McCarthy. You were wrong to attack my patriotism. I was opposed to the war, but I love my country. And we need a president who will bring this country together, not divide it. We've had enough. Wow, he made it a a kind of a reverse question of character. Absolutely. And and by the way, again, George H.W. Bush, a man of towering character, never raised it again. Right. And just to be clear, what happened in that moment 
it seems of a, an entirely different order of magnitude. But I think the natural question is, in next week's debate, could Hillary Clinton achieve something similar as Bill Clinton achieved in that 1992 debate with George H.W. Bush, where she takes a moment like the lie Donald Trump told about birtherism and brings it back to the question of character. Could you foresee that happening? Should she try that? Yes, if... See, I, I can work through you, Michael. This is actually legal. I can't advise Hillary. That's right. Super PAC rules, warning. Exactly. But I can tell you in the world what I'd like to see. I would counsel first, don't make it a lie that was about you, Hillary. That lie was about Bill Clinton, and he wanted to defend himself. But ultimately, it didn't help advance his argument that he could create jobs. I would pick a lie that was about someone else, Senator Cruz, President Obama. More importantly, perhaps all the people who alleged that they were victims of fraud from Trump University or other acts that people believe Trump has committed that have harmed working people. The most important thing I'm looking for in this debate is which candidate will make it about the voters, not themselves. Hard to do when you're in this negative of a campaign. But yes, she could create a have-you-no-shame moment about the things that Trump had said about Senator McCain when he said he wasn't a war hero, or, as I said, President Obama, um, or any number of other people, Senator Cruz. People who he has wronged who are not Hillary, and shame him for that. And that shows even greater strength than confronting someone face-to-face about a lie they told about you. So, Paul, if Hillary Clinton does that and she takes the high road, it rests on the assumption that that's what voters want. Yep. Isn't it possible that that's not what they want? Yes, but they do. And when we say voters, I don't mean all voters. The voters who are in play this time are not, interestingly, the swing voters who are Latinos who, for example, swung to George W. Bush. He got 44% of them in 2004. Or the soccer moms that Bill Clinton carried or the security moms that that Bush carried. The swing voters here are these college-educated whites that we talked about earlier. They have never been a swing vote before, ever. They live in the fact-based world. They are terribly troubled by Trump. They're among the most loyal Republican performers in the electorate, and yet, because they actually believe in truth and fact above ideology, they're in play. The constituency that will, I think, actually decide this election is passionately committed to truth. This is a provocative question, and it's deliberately so. But if you're running against Trump, and you see that this strategy seems to be working, is there a theoretical and, of course, disconcerting argument that you should just lie to? No. No, no, no. Ask Marco Rubio. Marco Rubio is seems to be a perfectly bright guy. He seems to be perfectly decent. I don't really know him. But he stood on the stage and started arguing about the size of Trump's genitalia, because Trump was. No, no, because the people who are most open to to those lies are the people Trump already has. There's still a market for truth and honesty, and I believe it's the majority. Paul, thank you. Michael, thanks so much. This was fun. Things are starting to get really interesting with 48 Days to Go, which is why we need this more than ever. Nate Cohen, what's our number? The number is seven. Seven what? A seven-point lead for Donald Trump uh, in the first New York Times upshot Siena College survey of Florida among voters who have a greater than 90% chance to turn out in November. So these are the voters who are really predisposed to vote on November 8th. Yeah, these are the people that show up in just about every election. They vote in the midterms, in the primaries, they vote in the last presidential election, and so on. These are the people who you can pretty much guarantee are going to be there. When I think of a Trump voter, I think of them as being a less likely white voter who traditionally hasn't been as reliable in coming to the polls. Was that a mistaken impression? 
so your your point is is well taken. So it's kind of complicated, but think about it like this. Let's say we have a 45-year-old white male. A 45-year-old white male who's never voted before is probably likelier to support Trump than a 45-year-old male that's voted all the time. But the people who are regular voters are so much younger and diverse than the rest of the population that that group of irregular voters is still Democratic-leaning. Every time I've been in Florida and I meet with a political operative, they talk about Florida as the melting pot of the United States. You have Cubans, you have Puerto Ricans. All these new groups of voters are supposed to make it a a future stronghold for the Democratic Party. But you're telling me that Trump is performing quite well there. Does that mean we're just not where these operatives think Florida is headed? Well, I think that what's playing out in Florida is sort of what's playing out nationally, which is that, yes, there are these big demographic changes that are incrementally moving the Democrats forward. Yes, Democrats are doing quite well among Hispanic voters. But you know, the Democrats are, really are losing a lot of ground among white voters, and especially white working-class voters who have traditionally supported them. And there are still a lot of white working-class voters in the country, and in Florida even. And that right now is enough to largely counteract uh, whatever the Democrats have gained as a result from demographic shifts or Republican defections among Hispanic voters. So, Nate, I'm on the Upshot website, and I can tell that Florida is still tilting a little bit in our predictive model to Hillary Clinton. How can that be? Well, I mean, the thing to remember about presidential elections is that they are all but assured to draw in millions of voters who don't usually vote. Maybe they only have a 50% chance to vote. But when we're talking about millions of voters who have a 50% chance to vote, that's a lot of people who are going to show up. If the Clinton campaign can make sure that those people that show up are the disproportionately Democratic-leaning, non-white and younger voters that our poll says back her overwhelmingly, then she would be able to win the state. And there are other factors that could potentially work in her favor down the stretch in that regard. More voters are going to register over the next few weeks. And the Clinton campaign has a field operation that's designed to counteract exactly this problem. Whether or not it works, we'll find out. Nate, thank you very much. Yeah, no problem. The Run-Up is a production of The New York Times. Our campaign manager is Lisa Tobin. Samantha Henning is our war room director. Our senior advisor is Sam Dolnick. Carolyn Ryan is our chief strategist. Our pollster is Vanessa Romo. Pedro Rosado is our director of operations. Our field manager is Diantha Parker. Every campaign has a theme song. Ours is by Jim Brumberg and Ben Landsberg of Wonderly. That's it for The Run-Up. I'm Michael Barbaro. I'll see you back here on Friday. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.